You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating, episode 25 with Courtney Dowdell. Courtney is a licensed creative arts therapist in New York State. She's a certified eating disorder therapist and a registered board certified drama therapist with over 10 years of clinical experience. She specializes in the treatment of eating disorders, disordered eating, and body image issues. We actually met when Courtney was working at a higher level of care, and I hope she doesn't mind me sharing this. I weirdly remember we were going around sharing things that we enjoy, sort of small things. And she said she loves making arrangements of flowers from Trader Joe's, which is also one of my favorite things to do. Fun fact, totally not related. Anyways, Courtney's experience and training as a creative arts therapist actually gives her a really unique perspective on different ways to achieve healing because it forces anybody to think differently, like artistically, creatively, and out of the box. So this is one of my favorite topics. I know I say this a lot, but it's actually one of my favorite topics, specifically when it comes to the title of the show, Understanding Disordered Eating. When you really want to come into a deeper understanding of your relationship with food, the best way to do that is to think metaphorically. and. We'll go through exactly what that means and how to do it and sort of branch out in different ways. But in a nutshell, our relationship with food, our symptoms, whatever you want to call it, is an encoding of basically all the pain and all of our experiences and memories in behavior form. And when we use our behaviors and symptoms and relationship with food and decode it, metaphorically speaking, we can actually get to what's underneath the behaviors. Courtney, thank you so much for joining me. I'm very excited to talk about our topic. Maybe before we dive in, can you share a bit about your background and some of the work that you do? Sure. So I am a licensed creative arts therapist and my background is in drama therapy. And so I went to get my master's at drama therapy at NYU. And so I really love theater. And my background before I did that was in theater for pretty much my whole life. And um, I really found it to be a place of community and connection and healing. And when I went to school at NYU, I just wanted to bring and bridge healing and therapy with theater. And that's how I was brought to NYU. And then from there have really developed, you know, took, you know, windy road, you know, through my career and, you know, worked at Bellevue hospital. And so there I worked in forensic. Um, and then I also worked with adolescent and children. And then from there worked at balance eating disorder clinic for many years and became while I was there, a certified eating disorder specialist. And so I bridge now kind of multiple different domains of working primarily with eating disorders in private practice, 
while also bringing embodied creative arts therapy and drama therapy approaches to that. What does it actually look like, either in individual or more so in the groups that you've run in the past? What is the drama therapy and using all of those tools actually look like? So, you know, drama therapy is so interesting because in many ways it brings a very embodied approach. And often what we look at is the body. You know, when we are in group, we are all individuals there. But we think about our bodies that might be in need of containment, bodies that need to be witnessed to be with, given holding space by other people. And so often the group becomes a holding container to be seen and for individuals to be seen as capable, to be able to sit in the discomfort, to be able to tolerate distress, to be able to regulate their own emotions. And so it's within the body, but also within the container of the group that this can be really helpful. Often what we're looking at is how individuals can build trust in themselves in their own bodies and to be able to really listen and to attune into their physical and emotional internal cues within themselves. So definitely something that's really difficult for somebody with an eating disorder to do. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting because eating disorders, they often can cause individuals to fluctuate between what we call rigidity and chaos. That can often happen due to an overwhelming thoughts, emotions, or feelings. So often when we bring in what we call a role theory approach in drama therapy, what we're hoping to do is be able to separate out the individual from the eating disorder and to see all the multitude of different roles that this person holds in other aspects of their life, such as daughter, son, colleague, friend, lover, whatever it might be, so that this person is a full human being with many different experiences. And that how do we separate out the ED from these other parts, what we call the authentic self in eating disorder recovery? I'm also thinking about what you do in group, and it sounds like a fast track to healing because it's the kind of things that we talk about in therapy. But if you're acting it out and you're experiencing it in vivo, that is so powerful. Yeah, because it's also, if you think about it, in that moment when we're with other people, someone can say, how does that feel in your body? And not only are you attuning into your own body, but they're also attuning into the bodies of other people as well. And so, for example, if we're doing what we call a spectrogram or a sculpt in your body, right? We're like, okay, what does anxiety look like to you? And then some individual will say, this is what anxiety looks like for me. So not only are they embodying that emotion for themselves of what it feels like, but then other people in the group are then able to see them in that moment about what anxiety looks like for that person in their body. And that we're looking at that as like kind of um, building empathy, right? And But also being able to see different perspectives about how anxiety lives in one body might be very different about how it lives in someone else's body. That's so cool. So maybe diving in straight into what we had wanted to talk about, the idea of metaphors. I love this topic. It's one of my favorites. Uh, I think I just said that. I'm thinking about the one of the most recent episodes that came out. I was like, this is my favorite. Well, this is also my favorite. Um, (laughs) The idea of metaphors, mostly because if we think about eating disorders and really symptoms in general, it's almost an encoding of our entire life or the general history of our life struggles. And if we can understand what's going on with behaviors or even in our bodies as a a code, if we decode it, 
by using metaphors, then we can get at so many more, it was a deeper understanding of this person's life. Yeah. And I think if we look at it like that too, even if we think about hunger fullness cues, right? Where we're looking at eating disorder recovery, um, the metaphor of thinking about this, like what's on your plate, you know, for example, you can take a look and say, we can look at it like what's on your plate, meaning like what's literally on your plate, but then thinking about it more metaphorically and with more distance about what's on your plate in your life, you know, is your life, if we kind of take a step back and be able to create some reflections about the things that are in your life that are happening, are they nourishing? Do you have variety in your life? Do you find joy in it? Is there contentment? Is it sustainable? And you know, that sort of metaphor can be really helpful, not only to look at like what's happening behaviorally with the eating disorder, for example, like, is there rigidity happening? Are you able to have food variety? Are you prescribing like certain foods to be good, certain foods to be bad, like certain ones to be healthy or unhealthy? Like, can you create some more neutrality to kind of what we think about the literal what's on your plate? And a lot of the times, you know, I have many colleagues, you know, who I work with in tandem, you know, nutritionists who can really be helpful with those pieces. But on the metaphoric side of like what I take away is, okay, so what's happening in other parts of your life too? What's happening in your relationships? What's happening with, you know, are you doing things that feel joyful? Like if we kind of then bring it into movement, like are you, when we think about movement too, you know, this idea of what's the intention behind it? Am I engaging with movement because it makes me feel good and because I like it and it's an act of love for myself or care for myself and it's joyful to be in my body and do it that way? Or am I acting with intent as a punishment to change or manipulate my body or to do things like that? And so it's just provides more information, you know, in the clinical relationship so that we're able to be present and say like, okay, where are you at? let me meet you where you are. And this is information that can give me that information so that we can work with it and figure out where we want to go and how, how we want to move forward. Right. So it's not so much a what's on your plate and this is bad and this is good. It's what's on your plate to gather information. And if you think about it visually drawing out your plate, that can be so helpful thinking about something that you thought was part of your life but you see that it's taking up a larger piece of your plate than you actually want it to, and you see it visually or you talk it through, then there's so much more information about where you can divide your energies or what you need to pivot away from in order to bring more joy. That sort of approach could be really helpful. Yeah. And I think that's the piece too, because for each person, it's going to be very unique and very individual to them. So that's why it's like when you take that moment to take a look at what's happening in your own life, then you can think about, okay, where am I at right now? And where do I want to go? And so much of like, and if there's a gap between where I am right now and where I want to go, what are the things that need to happen in order to move me toward that while offering myself grace and compassion and gentleness to make those steady movements to where I want to go? but not to overwhelm my system in that moment. So it's really about this steady movement about where I want to go and embracing compassion of where you're at right now. That brings to mind something that you've mentioned before is sort of the addition to the what's on your plate and how are you digesting this? That's a really big question to add on to the rest of this uh, metaphor. Yeah. So I think when we think about digestion using that metaphor too, right? Of of thinking about what are the things that are in our life 
what are the things that are coming our way? And, you know, it's interesting because thinking about family relationships, thinking about interpersonal experiences, thinking about school or work demands or what's what's happening in your life that you need to process, that you need to integrate, that you need to take in. When we think about boundaries, about setting the things, if, if I'm looking and I'm finally seeing that this invisible load and then I'm making it visible and I'm identifying it and it's become so overwhelming and it's too much, then how do we create ways of like, what is sustainable? What is a way of when I take it in, I'm able to let it move through me, able to process it and able to use the information that I'm getting in that way to guide my decision-making moving forward. And I think that's the process. Like if there's too much coming my way, how am I, how can I even digest it all? Right. Just certain things we kind of like have to put aside. And, and if there's not enough, right. If, if, if we're kind of from this place of scarcity and we want more, then how do we bring more into our lives in a way that feels sustainable, nourishing and soothing for us? Or even the specific types of things that we're digesting. Is this something that on a very literal level, how are we able to digest it? Is it a food that agrees with our body or is this on not such a literal level? Is this something that agrees with my lifestyle, with my values? And if not, then maybe there's something that we need to do about it. Yeah. And I think that's the piece too, the, the self-awareness piece of how key that is of like, what are my values and the things that are happening? Am I living in alignment with them? And so that that can also be a helpful tool in deciding what you want to be on your plate. You know, it can be a really helpful tool to say, if my value is my top, like my Northern star is, is honesty and integrity or compassion, right? And I want to live within those alignment with those values. What are the things that feel misaligned there? And how do I move away from those things and move toward the things that I do want? And allowing that to be the process that helps to guide what is on our plate Mm -hmm. and what, and then creating. Yeah, go ahead. No, I think you had mentioned the nourishing your body before when talking about what's on your plate part. And I wonder if we can sort of expand this part of the conversation to creating the nourishing meal plan that happens at, at least at the very beginning of eating disorder recovery, it's imperative and how we can sort of look at that piece too on a metaphorical level. Yeah. So, I mean, I think in, in that way of, of what is nourishing to our body, you know, we think about the three meals, three snacks per day, like kind of like those elements of like the more scientific and clinical experience, but then also thinking about what is sustainable for you um, and what is nourishing to you and thinking about the relationships that you're in, the work that you're in, you know, how do these things nourish you? Are they sustainable? you know, thinking about ways and and if they're not, what are ways that you can move toward feeling nourished in that way? It's interesting too, like where this is taking me right now is just thinking about the process of not enough or too much, right? And, and how do we find that middle space and finding that place of balance and integration, finding a place that feels pretty good. And we're not always going to find it, but it's, it's kind of, it exists on a spectrum and are we finding it as much as we can or more often than we're not? Yeah. And what I'm also thinking about is, especially in the beginning of eating disorder recovery, when having a nourishing meal plan is imperative. And if it's more uh, of a prescription type and much more um, not rigid is not the right word that I'm looking for, but it's much more specific than somebody with a more intuitive relationship with food, that at the beginning of doing your assessment with 
what's on your plate? How are you digesting this and creating a nourishing meal plan for your life? It might feel a little bit more forced in that you do want to incorporate more behaviors, interactions, et cetera, that align with your values. And that might integrate a little bit more seamlessly as time goes on, but that if it doesn't feel so as, as if it's flowing so much in the beginning, that's not, that's not a bad thing. That's something that we have to do intentionally in the beginning. Yeah. I think that's the piece too, of like, that it might not feel intuitive at first. And for example, you know, we're looking at hunger fullness cues in the beginning, it's more so about feeling not quite attuned to those internal cues and being able to feel that hunger cue. And so meanwhile, that's kind of what you were talking about before is like the prescription of it, where it's like, okay, so what we're moving toward is having these three meals, three snacks per day. And over time, you know, as your body becomes accustomed to having these meals that you are then you know, going to develop these cues and then start to listen to them and hear them and be able to feel them, then you can move toward a more intuitive approach to it. And so similarly, thinking about that, you know, that nutritional aspect in more of the therapeutic and emotional element, it's like, yeah, in the beginning, it might be like, okay, hold on, my distress tolerance skills, emotional regulation, how do I communicate? Oh, how do I bring all these things together in this very moment? You know, and it's like kind of doing that skills work in the moment. And often how I approach it is kind of like this top down, but also bottom up approach. You know, we're kind of looking at the skills work to help in those moments while also addressing some of the, the root issues, you know, the psychodynamics underneath and, and kind of understanding what is really happening underneath, you know, those pieces. So we're kind of like approaching it in that way. So you might be in that moment thinking about, okay, all these different things and how do I start to integrate them? where then over time, it just becomes more, it's a natural experience of, of, I can trust myself. I'm capable. These tools that I've, that I've been working on are here for me. I know that they're there. You know, I can just show up in my world authentically and, and be present with other people and allow those things to be there. The work that I've done and know it's there. And then know it's there for me as I move through my world. So I'm curious if just based off of what we're saying here. And obviously this is just a question based on an example that might pop into your head, but how can we potentially understand what makes this again, more symbolically, metaphorically difficult for someone to incorporate? And I'm talking more of like the restrictive type for people who have a hard time nourishing themselves. What do you think makes it difficult on that level? Well, I think, you know, it's interesting because I think again, that it's, very unique to each person. And at the same time, thinking about resistance, thinking about ambivalence, thinking about the rigidity of that, right? If, when we think about ambivalence, it's, you know, it's not, again, that's not we don't, that we don't care. It's like, I just, it's so hard. It's almost like straddling these two worlds of like, this is my eating disorder. We're on this other world and I'm wanting two things at the very same time, like wanting certain aspects of the ED, you know, whatever it's providing to you. And that I think it's also really important to validate that and to understand it and to meet someone where they're at and also to hold space for the other side of that, which is the freedom of not engaging with eating disorder thoughts, behaviors, and to be able to identify alternative coping methods or whatever it is offering in that moment. But I think in that moment of naming the ambivalence and identifying that is a part of recovery, you know, and feeling stuck can be a part of recovery. 
And is it safe to do life without my eating disorder, right? And thinking about that, of, of finding ways to build safety in yourself without that. I mean, I think in terms of building safety too, thinking about our nervous systems, you know, as we engage in change, how do we really soothe and the nervous system to do this exposure work, you know, in this slow and steady way to move toward where we want to go? Yeah. So even thinking about somebody's ambivalence indicates perhaps that there's some sort of fear attached to this thing that they really want and thinking about what the fear is about, what's underneath that fear? What are you afraid of? Why are you afraid of that? And how can we build some protection for you to strengthen you to be able to do this thing and then be able to nourish yourself or take some steps that feel scary? Yeah. I think it's also just opening yourself up. When we think about from that rigid space, how do you open yourself up to the world in that way of like, how do I play with the world? How do I experiment with the world? How do I stay curious to the world? How do I begin to ask questions that I might not know the answer to? How do I embrace the unknown? You know, thinking about expansiveness, creativity, spontaneity, play, taking risks. I mean, these are all the aspects of this, this other side of like really being in the world, um, making mistakes. Yeah. Even the words that you're using here are maybe words that we use specifically in terms of challenging oneself to engage in recovery, but also words that can be generalized to the rest of rest of life in expansiveness, maybe taking up more space in one person's example. And what does that look like? And maybe we can talk about body image a little bit more because there's so much in body image that can be uh, used as metaphors Maybe even without a specific question, maybe if you can talk a little bit more about that. When we think about body image, often it comes with so many different aspects of like how in our world, we think about the social aspects of it. We think about, you know, in our families, what are our learned experiences? What has been taught to us by our family systems about bodies? Thinking about the social aspects about social media, like what are the bodies that are being portrayed and represented? in the world, you know, and from that thinking about, you know, as you're growing up, like, okay, so how do I make meaning of all this? Right. Like, and what is the world around me telling me about what my body should look like or should be like? And often that messaging that becomes internalized within like that, this is good. And that this is bad, or like, this is what is preferred. And this is what you should do. And how do we challenge these shoulds of, of society, but then also remembering that Every body is unique. There are no two bodies that are going to be alike. And how do we embrace when we think about our bodies biologically, where they want to be, if they're given, you know, adequate nourishment, where does my body like to be? Where does it like to land? Can I just allow my body to be what it is? And often in our society, the answer to that is, is no. Um, and so it becomes almost an act of courage and rebellion in our society to say, I accept my body for where it is, where it likes to land, where it wants to be. And I'm going to show up in my world as authentically as I can accepting my body. Yeah. I'm thinking about what you're saying in so many different levels. I love the courage and rebellion that yeah. I use. <laughs> um, but the idea that it does take so much courage to challenge 
diet culture, wellness culture, and all that. That's basically what society has deemed as the gold standard right now to pursue health in a certain way or their definition of health. And that if we actually stand up and say, I'm going to allow my body to take up as much space as it needs to, is to challenge this sort of overall idea that diet culture is trying to squash diversity and make everyone uniform. Everybody is the same. There is no individuality. When in fact there is diversity and individuality and we have to embrace that, but it's really scary. So on a physical level with our bodies, but also metaphorically in society and even just as women, for example, can we take up more space and use our voice and, you know, encourage diversity, encourage um, empowerment? Yeah. And I think that's the piece of, of when we think about using our voice, right? To say, I'm going to allow my body to be what it is and to show up in this world. And through that, if we're able to do that and really challenge diet culture, that there is this ideal and that encourage individuals to be in their bodies the way that they are, then we can embrace more diversity and, and show that, that actually what we're saying is true, like the science behind it, right? Which is that bodies like to land in different places. And we think about, you know, the theory of set point theory of like thinking about where does my body want to land if I'm giving it three meals, three, three snacks per day and joyfully moving, then where, where is my body? You know, and often when we kind of the science behind it of like not engaging in eating disorder thoughts, behaviors from that, you know, after a year, like thinking about where, where our bodies want to be and knowing that again, that can be really challenging, right? And often I think in my work that this body image is the piece that we keep coming back to. We keep coming back to that kind of ties of like, that this is really hard. You know, it's really hard not wanting to engage in behaviors because I want my body to look a certain way. Yeah. And thinking about sort of almost cliche statements that people say, body image is the last to go. Fat is not a feeling. All of these things that are technically true, maybe unpacking why that's true and how we can understand, well, why is body image last to go? Probably because it's at the crux of a lot of it. So even, for example, when someone says, oh, I feel so fat, besides for, you know, the idea that fat is not a feeling is a little dismissive. Well, when you say that, what is that representative of? What's underneath that? How can we understand what your feeling fat might actually mean to you? And what does it mean? Maybe, maybe, I don't know, for someone, it might be, I'm really angry. I feel really angry. I feel angry that I was living within this culture that prescribes this body to me. And if I'm not that body, then I can't be this. And yeah, I'm angry about it. And so maybe it's that, or maybe it's, I'm just disappointed. I'm just disappointed. I don't know. It could be or like, I'm really sad or I'm really frustrated and, and allowing these emotions to be there as messengers that this is not okay. Right? So your anger is valid. Your frustration is valid. Your disappointment, your sadness is valid because you're living in this diet culture experience. And it's, it takes really a lot of time to unlearn that experience of like over time 
having these messages, messages, messages internalized and brought your way. And I will add to that, that sometimes these feelings, and especially I'll add disgust, are not feelings that feel okay to target onto something else. And so we sort of bring it onto our body because that's how we've been conditioned, you know? Fat is a terrible thing that diet culture has said. And and if you feel fat, it means all of these terrible things about you. And so it might feel, quote, okay to channel it onto your body, whereas maybe you're feeling angry at society or maybe you're feeling disgust with something that's going on that feels a little threatening to feel. Maybe you're feeling sad in connection with something else and that all of those feelings that you're saying are so valid. And also, let's see if we can connect them to its original source. Yeah, I think, again, what when when you were just sharing that, what burdened me is just noting that there is health at every size and to be really attuned to that, that in many ways, often our society creates this stigma against fat and it's really angering because in order to accept body diversity, we also cannot engage in that. And often individuals, right, who often will, then we're we're kind of even going into a other aspect of it, which is like not being able to engage in medical care for fear of going to the doctor because of not having this awareness about body diversity and all different types of bodies and health at every size. And so that the feelings or experiences that you're feeling are really valid, given that there might not be as much awareness that there needs to be in our world about this topic. Yeah. And even when when we use or when I use the term fat, why has it become something any more than a descriptor, like tall, short, I mean, it's a word and it's become so loaded that it sort of kind of takes it out of context that people even go to the extent of saying, I feel fat as like a a negative thing. This is like, again, this is a terrible thing that's happening to me as opposed to, well, this word is neutral. It really is neutral. And I think that's the piece of like, how do we take away the power of it and create more neutrality around that word? Because often, exactly as you said before, right, of like it becomes this experience of I feel fat as a descriptor for something that's I'm having experiencing some negative or unpleasant feeling. And meanwhile, again, are we saying, I feel tall today? I feel short. It's like, no, these experiences, right? We think about, you know, it's interesting. I remember being in a conversation, and the fact is, is that you know, whether you're tall or short, these are genetic aspects and it's exactly the same thing for our body shape and size, right? They are genetic, like genetics really do play an, a part there. Yeah. I also think this is one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about the idea of using these words, these experiences metaphorically, because if they're just what they are, meaning descriptors, then we wouldn't have any feeling attached to it. And the fact that there is and there's so much loaded in there means that it cannot possibly be just about how your body looks today. First of all, it's not much different than it was five hours ago, but also that it it's disproportionate. 
these are feelings that we're attaching maybe other parts of our lives and that we do have to think about these feelings, these thoughts, these, in essence, sometimes neutral descriptors as something that means so much more. We have to think about it symbolically, metaphorically, because otherwise, again, they would be neutral. We wouldn't care about them. Right. Yeah. No, I agree there. And I think that's the piece of noting where there is not neutrality and how do we move toward more neutrality with those aspects. But then also to remember that not every experience is going to be neutral. For example, we may work toward that of like, but yet wherever you're at is valid, you know? And I think that's the piece of being in a therapeutic relationship where any feeling that you're having is a valid experience. And then we can explore it together to understand and get really curious about what's happening there, what's going on and with this feeling, and then understanding it from your own perspective, from your own life path, about where you've been, from your own learned experiences, from your own family systems, interpersonal relationships, right? Your own unique cluster of of how, where you are right now, and we can understand it through that lens, and then work with it, like work with the emotions that are coming up. So instead of judging, it's information. And what do we do with the information? We can do anything. Yeah. And really embracing it to how do we create this really non-judgmental space where you can bring your thoughts, feelings about anything and say, wow, you know what? Actually, like I'm not feeling pretty neutral about that. I want to be, I wish I could, but right now I'm not. And to be able to understand that, why you might feel the way that you feel. Because in order to do any sort of work, we do have to have some element of curiosity because when the curiosity is swapped for judgment, then we just sort of stay in this place of, well, it's definitely not curious, but it's a a place of, well, I should be this way. I should be different. And then there's no exploration. There's no healing. There's no change going on. And then we're stuck. And I think that's the place of like, when we shame ourselves or when we judge ourselves in that place of feeling stuck, it can be really challenging to kind of move out of it. And so the way in offering different, like we kind of come back to utilizing creative approaches through these different elements of whether it's poetry or art or drama, or, or even like sharing your favorite song, you know, sometimes it can kind of move you out of that in that moment. And through some distance, understand what might be happening for you internally in this more metaphoric way, and then kind of bringing you out of that to see things in a different way or through a different lens and offer you maybe some more information about what, what's happening and where you want to go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love this conversation. We can probably bring so many more examples just in the interest of time before I let you go. um, Can you share with our listeners where they can find you? Sure. So right now you can see me on Instagram, my tag, if that's what it's called. I'm sorry. It's Courtney Dodell. Uh, it's Courtney Dodell, C-O-U-R-T-N-E-Y, Dowdell, D-O-W-D-E-L-L. I am on CourtneyDowdellTherapy.com or you can find me. I am in private practice and um, yeah, thank you so much for, for having me on this podcast. I really, really enjoyed our conversation today. Yeah. Well, thank you for being here. And um, I kind of wish we would have recorded all of our conversations that we prepped because we were talking about so much more, but maybe for a later time. 
but thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Of course. Of course. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. If you enjoyed today's episode and you know someone who may as well, please share it. Not only does it help us reach more people, it really makes my day to know that this show is making a difference. All right. Talk next time.